Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing regular procurement in crisis times and mentoring in academia. Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bistec. Let's dish up public procurement law. So welcome back, everyone. Today, um, Marta and I are discussing uh, regular procurement um, in COVID times. Uh, we felt like uh, in the last episode, uh, we we touched upon some issues that needed uh, more discussion. Uh, last time, we looked at some of the possibilities to, to, to set aside normal public procurement rules. Uh, we looked at some of the approaches in the member states, but of course, there's also some more legal aspects that we think deserve to deserve more uh, more attention. So, in this episode, we'll be looking um, more at that. Um, uh, but first off, um, how are you, Marta? I'm good. How about yourself? <laughs> all, all good. Actually, we are talking about food because I think half the people here still think that we opened up a restaurant. Yeah. Um, um, uh, still in my living room for one, um, and I think I think you're you're in the you're in your office, right? No, no, that's 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 just how my living room looks like. <laughs> it oh, sorry. looks like office. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, so actually, we're um, uh, we ordered in some excellent food, and I found that um, trying to make make like some light discussion, our, our conversations have changed into: are we um, are we cooking ourselves, or are we stimulating the local economy by ordering oh, yeah. food? And that actually, is such a great way for, of, to order in food every every night. But it was an awesome awesome Thai food. So. That's good. Just, That's good just, to hear that. Just wanted to share that before we delve into full public into, procurement stuff. Into full on serious stuff. No, no. But, you know, this is also a really um, important part of this conversation to at some point have. And, and um, I would just sort of signal that right now. And I think that maybe we can take um, a little bit um, more time into it. Um, and our last part on the future debates about... Um, these sort of COVID consequences, but you know, we we right now will be for sure focusing right now as a consumers, and I think the same way contracting authority will try to push a lot of local procurements and a lot of uh, sort of trying to help out the local communities to bounce back out of all of this. So, if that is as a consumer, as you say, sort of trying every day to have. Uh, something from maybe local suppliers and uh, local restaurants to, you know, probably the same thing when it comes later on with the municipalities and so on, trying to help out those local companies. So, yeah, it all always comes back to procurement. Villain. That's, <laughs> that's the, the conclusion. Thing. We always come back to procurement. But it's, it's the, I don't know if everyone agree, would agree with that, but at least we're no, just so nerdy no. that we actually think this is, uh, <laughs> that's relevant. Um, so, so for today... Um, let's talk about regular procurement. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is also in the discussions that we've had in the last uh, couple of weeks is, of course, there's a lot of discussion now about urgent procurement, right? There's a lot of materials that need to be purchased now, right? Or due to unforeseen circumstances. But I think our role as academics is also to kind of look forward to the future, right? And to think ahead of what are things that will come or what what happens to regular procurement, right? And when we mean regular, it means regular now, 
during these COVID times, but also regular after the, the pandemic has, uh, has ended. Um, and I, when we, you know, when we step away for a second from this, um, you, you know, sort of health defying and, and, and life saving procurements, bottom line, uh, we, I think also very quickly just realized that all what's happening to very large extent also impacts a very regular purchases, a very regular services because, you know, contract for, you know, building roads or contract for uh, cleaning uh, services at university, it will be affected right now because you don't have people to go and deliver in time those contracts. You may have problems of those companies to being able to fulfill all sorts of different obligations. And that is in regards to contracts that are right now being uh, performed, but it's also in regards to the procurement processes that are right now in the middle of, of so to speak, um, being carried through, and the procurements that we're right now thinking about actually establishing, right? And the question will how we exist within this, uh, this reality of COVID-19 in this regular life of procurers. Yeah, so, that, so ultimately the question is... Um when does when does urgency end right and for certain procurements urgency never started um particularly na- particularly now um but for other medical devices urgency is perhaps still ongoing and then we would have we would need to at least as lawyers also look at okay when does regular start even f- when is everything regular right um, that and also from perspective, you know, to trying to highlight what the problem is. And I think that the problem is, of course, is that uh, unfortunately, and that's what experience shows us, that um, we see the situation in which some of those rules are trying to be circumvent or some of those rules are trying to be stretched to the extent that they should not. In other words, you're trying to argue urgency because it will allow you, bottom line, direct a word towards the services, contracts, um, supplies, that this should never be applied, right? And, and then we talked about before starting to recording and as one of the examples that I think is quite, quite interesting. Um, there has been an argument of saying, okay, right now our company went to full-on working from home mode. Uh, as a matter of urgency, we need to purchase laptops, send it to our employees so they can work from home. And then at which moment this constitutes an urgent procurement. And let's say if that happened in the first week of lockdown in a particular country, I would say that maybe that's okay. But if that happens month after or two months after, can you still argue the urgency? And, and I guess the question is about when is the, the, the sort of border between those things, right? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, the, the commission seems relatively flexible. Uh, particularly uh, in the, um, uh, the guidance document that was published on the 1st of April, the commission seems to advocate that a lot, or at least a, a lot would be possible in these times. And that perhaps even also these, these urgency measures would, or these also these type of procurement would fall under urgency. Mm. But uh, yeah, this is where I struggle a bit with uh, a very lenient approach towards urgency. Um, and where I think, well, there's, there's not really been a very explicit explanation so far by the by the Court of Justice. Uh, there's been some cases, um, and the, I, I do think that even though, yeah, okay, short short is great, and it takes a lot longer to write a short letter, I've been told, than a long one. 
Um, but it would have been nice if the commission would have at least, you know, tried to also show uh, perhaps through examples or um, uh, other other ways of being more clear about, okay, how do we make this distinction? Because uh, for, 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 for laptops um, and, and employees working from home, I mean, the longer this crisis goes on, uh, the harder it's going to be to argue that, that it urgency. would actually be uh, an, an urgency, an urgency, right? Well, exactly. And, you know, the, and, and the question is if, if uh, so to speak, to, to, to what extent we can say, okay, yeah, we need to be lenient because the times really called for it, right? And in which point we're actually dealing with a situation that um, provisions are just being circumvented and, and someone is trying to take advantage of the situation. And I think that finding this line uh, will be and is, I think, quite difficult. Um, the one thing is that I do think that um, we probably in the years to come will get a bit more of um, information on how you interpret urgency. I do think that we will see more cases in it. And that's interesting. I would be interesting because if I remember um, from our last uh, um, episode, the conversation about litigation, you were of an opinion that you think that actually courts will be fairly lenient and we will not see that much of of court cases do i remember correctly um yeah i, th- I think it's it's a bifold argument one would be <clears throat> you'd need to be um you'd need to have a pretty strong pr department as a competitor to be able to 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 start this this uh, such legal proceedings um i don't think it would look very good uh in particularly in these covid times so i think um, even though it might be a legitimate claim, I think companies would be hesitant to, to file those claims simply because it might make them look bad. Um, so there's a bit of bl- difference mm-hmm. between practice and legal. Um, but also, um, yeah. I think it's also cost, to be honest. For if, sure. if we're looking right now, you know, um, how big of a head economy is getting. Um, of course, um, different member states different cost of launching those proceedings but it's for sure some type of cost and the question is also if i this is a bit uh, dual right on the one hand side i can totally imagine a company saying well if we would got that contract it could really help us it could really save us from let's say bankruptcy right on the other hand, I can also imagine there will be a companies um, that they approach will be okay. Let's just not get ourselves in a long litigious process. Let's just try to you know get something else. Yeah. So, so it will be interesting to see what it to see what happens. And I think the 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 I think the point uh, the the second aspect of it is that courts might be lenient if they have the option from the remedies directive, and I, that's what we touched upon in the last yeah. episode is these overriding reasons in the general interest, like public health is one, so perhaps courts will be lenient when it comes to that. But that, I think only time will tell if uh, how different courts and different member states, if they have the option, uh, how they will go about they it. They will and, go uh, about it, yeah. Yeah. So um, in terms of, in terms of uh, urgency, also like looking at the length of, of the, how long they're predicting for this, this crisis to last, right? So the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, uh, said that we need to work towards a new normal, right? A new normal of one and a half meter distancing. Um, yeah. So perhaps do we need to move to a new normal for public procurement as well? Yeah, and that, that's a tough call, right? And that's a tough call in, in, in that regards because uh, it's also, it, it's also um, posing a challenge, um, particularly to carry out some of those procurements 
um, we will be talking in a second also about the issues of getting documents and different certification right now because everything is closed. So the question is, I think uh, we can require the new normal uh, in context of procurement if the infrastructure, so to speak, is there. And I think that that's, again, quite different between different member states. Some of the member states, I think, large majority of whole procurement proceedings is very much digitalized. And some of the member states are really good sort of in, in that regard. So that can sort of jump through a bit faster, right? But if you have still some of the member states, the majority of proceeding is still through paper, I think it will be, it will be quite risky to suddenly say, okay, from now on we are back into full on normal procurement uh, regimes and routines without the urgency and you need to get all of that. And just to, to, to um, show the example um, of, of, of the challenges, when it comes to the procurements that are currently carried out, right? So they maybe potentially started just at the time when the COVID-19 took over or just before. We somewhere at the middle, um, particularly, let's say, um, selection stage. And the question is right now about obtaining different documentation, if that is from national criminal records or from tax offices or different types of certification from social insurance in, uh, institutions, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we know uh, it has been reported that in different member states, the challenge exists because those institutions are um, or fully closed or they are substantially slowed down due to, due to the new reality. So it's very difficult in time or, or the time has been substantially expanded, um, the waiting time to, to receive some of those documentations. Now, of course, looking at the commission guidelines, one of the things that you can do is, is, is work with deadlines, right? So in context of this uh, question, we would say, well, you could potentially extend, expand the deadline for longer. But what if you still, as a bidder, are unable to, uh, to, to receive uh, this type of documentation in time, right? Yeah, so and that's, that's a difficult issue, and I think you've you've been this you've uh, so this was these were questions that you discussed with people in practice in Denmark in Denmark over the last couple of weeks, right? Uh, this is I, I, as I mentioned last time, I sort of took part in a whole lot of different webinars across European uh, law firms, majority that were organizing them, talking about this pra practice practice. Um, based problems. And that's specifically about this issue of documentation. That's something that has been discussed quite a lot in Poland. Um, the issue of, you know, how do we have some rules that we can just interpret um, to help us out somehow? And that's where the question particularly of this, um, of this article 16.2 of the directive, of the classic directive comes in, in place. Because if, uh, just to bring back, we in article 16.2, uh, which points out um, the issues of uh, documentation. And in cases, in the cases, the article is structured that in cases, if we have non-issue of documents in, uh, by competent authorities, in particular member states, then you are allowed to submit solemn declaration, authorized declaration, etc., etc. And now the question in Poland particularly is about if, how we interpret that. So we have this Article 60, we have um, this non, 
issue of, of documents problem. And then the question is, what was this actually made for, right? Because it seems to be more of an article that was this, that was introduced in terms of internal market concerns, right? You need an, a document, but it's not issued by, by the member state where you're from, or there's differences between judiciaries or, or legal proceedings. Um, and now we're faced with a crisis scenario that's that's inherently different, but it's got the same root problem. You can't get the document. Yeah. Uh, so how do you think we should interpret this? Well, I think that the starting point is exactly what you said. The first time that I heard about it and the first time that I looked at that provision, I said, uh, sort of my impression was, well, this this is predicted the interpretation is, you know, predicted as this permanent non-issue of documentation, meaning that this documentation are not provided at all in a given country. You don't have particular type of registry. So you need to find a different this sort of um, term that we use quite often in context of procurement or equivalent to, right? So it's a, a different source of documentation for that. But right now in the context of the pandemic, the, the, there, there has been proposed this uh, line of interpretation that is also for this temporary solution. So the, we normally issue the documents in particular member state, but temporarily this has been stopped the issuing of such documents. So, so uh, can we interpret right now this this provision of of saying, well, due to the new circumstances, you are exceptionally, so to speak, allowed to submit a solemn declaration, right? And I think that having in mind what's happening right now, that would fulfill the same argument, right? Yeah, I would say so. It's kind of like a more of a teleological interpretation of, of an article. Mm. So it's, if you actually manage to prove the same as what a normal uh, official institution would be able to do, um, still that would be hard, right? Because if, if say, a criminal record check, I, I don't know how you would do that alternatively other than just say, and, and say I, I have never committed any of these offenses, right? Mm. Um, so, so yes, to, to a certain extent, there would be that would be the solution, I think. Um, but there's, it, it's still incredibly difficult for, for particularly the more official documents get, the harder it would be to actually be able to still provide it, right? Yeah, well, I think that there could be, you know, an, an option maybe that could be um, implied is that you, for the selection stage, you are allowed to do so. And then at some point, if, if that's achievable to submit before the award of the contract, the actual the actual documentation, if that's not possible, I think that's something that recently has been um, also discussed in context of, of, of a lot of challenges with frauds within procurement these days uh, due to this whole urgency. The question would be if also you should not include a quite stringent uh, comments on, on you know, um, prosecution for wrongful provision of information, right? Yep, yeah. So this is, this is all, we're continuously debating leniency, right? To, to think about okay, yeah. how, how lenient will we be and, and what's justified in these, in these situations. Um, there's, there's, I think, two more things that, that uh, we need to discuss in, in at least this episode, um, or at least that I would like to discuss. Um, and this is also, so we talked about issuing of documents. When do you move from urgency to, to regular procurement, even for those urgent procurements, right? Because for other procurements, we're already in the regular phase. And then the question is really, if we get out of this, what's really the value of like market analysis and market consultations that we've relied upon for years, right? My gut feeling would be is that we would need to move straight to um, if 
if markets really are going to change as a lot of economic institutions are expecting them to do, um, what do we, or at least, I wouldn't say it's a warning, but like, I think contracting authorities would seriously need to think about their, um, their, their current market analysis on which, on which they base the structure and the setup of their procurements because they will have ine- inevitably have changed. Oh, absolutely. And also, it's a little bit like no one knows where we are one way or another. I'm maybe over-exaggerating a little bit, but um, it's it's so unpredictable. And, 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 and I think also a lot of commentators at this point are saying, you know, something that was true or valid yesterday is not anymore today because the data sort of flies in uh, so quickly and you're starting to realize all these new, new different things and effects. So, so, so yeah, I, I agree with you that this, this, this is quite... quite quite challenging it will be quite challenging and and introducing a whole different setup of 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 uh issues last to, point i think that we need yeah, to uh, discuss i think to move some, on. now you go this is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah because i actually wanted to ask you about it um and that is a quite nice link, you know, between um, the COVID conversation that we obviously needed to address, but also moving towards more the, the topics that um, we also originally really kind of bonded over and are both quite passionate about. And that is the question of sustainability uh, point in the COVID time, which um, I, think, I think we both were actually quite surprised and, and, it's, and I think it's worth to elaborate a little bit uh, more about. And that is the notion that sustainability has been, as a point mentioned in this communi- communication from the commission, saying that you, know, you, sh- you, should, um, you should include the sustainability. Now, it's probably the worst time possible to try to put additional layer of requirements on, on contracting authorities. But I just was wondering, you know, um, do you, how, how you see that point is, do I read it too literally? Is there a point that we can try to, you know, sort of defend it through the eyes of commission? What is your opinion about that? Yeah, well, I've also seen, I've seen mixed responses, right? And I think oh. I've also like had both thoughts in my head, but um, I think the general critique was, well, this is, I mean, I'm saying this bluntly, but this is ridiculous in these times. You should yeah. just not impose these requirements. On the other hand, I do think, uh, this is perhaps a bit more fundamental, I do think the European Union is also like a, a, a place of values, right? So um, a coming together a community of values. And um, I know that in itself is probably already a, a very much up for debate. But uh, even in these times, I think it's important that someone at least reminds us let's not throw everything overboard, right? Let's try to at least keep some of our, um, uh, the, the, our moral compass intact and not just go, okay, we need to get everything, particularly for those regular procurements, right? That's where sustainability is still so, so, so vital. Um, so, so I was like, I was going in between both, both sides of the, of the debate. And, and ultimately I think it's good that they mentioned it because, uh, particularly for those regular procurements, uh, it should be possible to still include them. And if not, then not, right? Then you've got yeah. somewhat of an excuse. I think that, you know, um, maybe it's also advisable not to read it so literally. And I mean that um, maybe, you know, you shouldn't think about the sustainability aspects in context of, you know, buying ventilators and masks and so on. Like when we're talking about yeah. this really urgent and important elements, that's, 
that's just the timing of getting those things is more important than anything else probably, right? But um, where I kind of see a possibility and potential here, and I think that that's confirmed by actually right now, a lot of the member states is when you think about the sustainability in the longer run, about this future perspective when we're coming out of COVID. And that is about... Um, you know, how we restart our economies and what should we try to do. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of um, our listeners and people interested in those topics also um, on different social media or on different platforms saw this comparison between, let's flat this curve also, this sort of comparison between coronavirus and sustainability and sustainable business. And you hear already, I think it's between five to 10 member states right now sort of... Um, signing this memos and this declaration of trying to reboot, particularly in context of environment, more environmentally friendly policies um, when, it, when it comes to, you know, restarting their economy. So I think that, you know, in the longer run, I think that that makes sense. So just maybe not that liter- liter- literal interpretation of that provision in that guidelines. No, for sure. And I, I think I fully comply with like the argument, never waste a good crisis. Not yeah. everything is bad and perhaps something good can come out of it. Like we discussed in the last episode, perhaps education will, uh, legal education at universities will become more balanced, more blended in terms of online and offline. Um, that's perhaps a good thing that will come out of it. So let's hope that also sustainability might get a push following, uh, following this crisis. Um, is it time for dessert? I think, I think so. I think let's, let's, let's talk about, let, let's lighten this up again a little bit. <laughs> we, we try, but I, I always find that when I talk about the, the, the COVID crisis, I can't help but get very serious, but that it might yes. also have, have something to do that we're being recorded, but that's a whole different discussion. We can discuss that after yeah. we've turned it off. Um, <laughs> we said we were going to just briefly touch upon uh, mentoring and the importance of that, I think, in academia uh, for master's students, for bachelor students, uh, but also young academics. And I think even also older academics, it's, it's actually, it's very valuable. And I think maybe also topical in these, uh, in these times, because um, in these new circumstances, it is nice to have people to, to fall back on, I find. For sure. And, you know, something that um, also has been discussed is, uh, just, just to, and, and forgive me for you know tying it back to COVID, but um, just to, to, to contextualize, yeah, to contextualize this a little bit is you know also this a lot of discussion is right now about mental health, mental health of you know all these people working from home, and and I think particularly also if you have let's say students and if that's PhD students or young academics or exchange students that did not go back home and they are in a foreign country and you suddenly locked up in your dorm room or somewhere else that you quite um, isolated literally, then, you know, the effects of all of it, if you really don't have much interaction with anyone, right? Um, so I think that the, that is very topical and, and time-wise uh, very important. But I think also we talked about um, a little bit why we want to talk about subjects like that in this podcast. And, and, and um, maybe you, um, William, will start up. What, what do you think, where are we aiming with that? What is the added value that we're hoping to provide with discussing things like the education or the mentoring or any of those? Yeah, so... 
maybe it's arrogance because we think we've got more to say than just public procurement. Uh, but I don't oh. think that's really it. I, or at least this is this is what my wife reflected. Um, uh, she reflected on, or she touched upon that during breakfast, <laughs> and she said, "Well, who cares, right?" But I think as as academics, we do have a responsibility to um, to actually. Uh, we, we're academics in the world, or we're academics in society, and what our position is. Um, is, is, is very similar whether you're a legal scholar or a, a better scientist. It doesn't really matter because you're faced with the same issues. And I think what I've always, uh, what I found very helpful is when people actually share the struggles or the, 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 the milestones that they achieved in their academic career, because that's where I learned the most. Um, because I thought, oh, maybe I'm not that weird, or maybe this is actually something that went really well and I didn't really acknowledge that, Right. Um, and, and so whether that be the, the first publication of an article or being rejected by a journal for the first time or all these type of milestones, I find that mentors have always helped me to, to give yeah. that a place and to kind of understand if it is an issue or if it isn't, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, also, also in context of academia, if we jumped for a second, you know, um, PhD students and young academics, all of this, there's also, you know, a huge level of, broadly understood competition uh, if that is a competition of for funding if that's a competition for jobs and and we always share you know the best and and the progress and so on and I think a part of all of it is also finding your tribe or finding your mentors your colleagues that also will share with you those things of you know um, how to go through the difficult um, difficult points in, in in your studies or in your research and, and how you overcome them, right? Yeah, so for sure. my question, my question, Will, and to you would be, if we're thinking about um, students, there are master students writing their thesis or young academics, um, usually you for sure have one way or another assign a supervisor. Would you say that supervisor is the same as your mentor? I mean, I, I, it would be great if it was like that, but I, I've seen mm. lots of examples where it isn't. Um, and I I would say choose choose wisely because I know when you look at particularly supervisors for theses I find a lot of students logically go for always the full professor right because it looks best on your resume so that's an Mm. undeniable truth but if you look at the amount of time that a, a professor like that logically has it's very limited compared to what maybe uh, a postdoc or an assistant professor or an associate professor might have right so you can't generalize but um, or you shouldn't, I suppose, but in, in general, and I love it when I say you shouldn't generalize and I'm about to generalize, <laughs> um, but in general, there is a difference in time devoted and perhaps also interest, right? So, oh yeah, I think that you're much more eager also, right? When you sort of a little yeah. bit at the beginning more, you, you really want to prove yourself and you want to do a good job. And if that's your first or second PhD student or your master thesis students, you, you, you really have like this burning... Um, eager in you to 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 help out. Yeah. So actually, to, before we close off, um, how do you go about go? How did you go about finding a mentor? Um, so I think that some of it some of it is random and happens randomly. Yeah. Um, but I think the one um, advice to any of the students or young academics that out of is to just 
make yourself a little bit vulnerable and ask for help. I think we all very scared to do that, particularly in academic context, because you worry that you won't come across as, as knowledgeable or somehow less. And, you know, um, I, the way how I found my mentors were just being quite honest and saying, you know, I have this idea or I struggle with this. And, and then you find out very quickly also some people kind of give you one-liner answer or brush you off. Some people really take interest. And um, these mentoring relationships are fantastic because, you know, that's, that's, to be honest, I also think what's your legacy. I do really look right now when I look at the uh, leading minds, the leading professors um, in fields, I think that um, the true, the true um, legacy of yours is how people think about you, what people, how, how, you know, how the PhD students who always return back and they always have you in mind and, and so on and so forth. I think the people are your legacy more than books and articles. So I think that that's, for me, also the great ambition, you know, in years of career to come to be that mentor. So whoever is listening... If you guys, by any chance, doing a PhD in procurement or anything of that kind, just, you know, I'm not going to say that for William, but for me, just write us an email if you need some help. You can um, say that like on me behalf and, of me. Yeah. Totally yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, get in touch. Say hi. Because that's, I think, uh, that's actually exactly yeah. what I wanted to add to what you're saying, because you, you put it beautifully. Um, but I think that does require one thing of, of these uh, young academics or graduating students is that they do take that first step, right? Because it's Absolutely. often not, not served to you on a platter. You do need to be, mm. be able to be vulnerable, like you say, but make that step, send that email. Uh, I've never, but maybe I was lucky, but I've never had a weird response whilst during my PhD when I said, um, hey, I'm working on this. Could we have a chat? Everyone wants to talk to you. It's, 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 it's not, not an option, or at least people, people also love to feel important, I think. But <laughs> uh, yeah, you can, uh, yeah, there's, uh, the world is not as scary as it might, might look. Um, and, and also f- perhaps work, and, and, and then I think we should really close off. Um, perhaps what uh, can help as well is that this feeling of feeling vulnerable and scared I don't know if you'll ever lose that in academia, right? Like there's always this feeling of, ooh, there's a slight bit of nerve, like, ooh, what am I doing? But that's the whole idea of science, right? Is that you're continuously putting yourself out there and and aim to be vulnerable. And being rejected also so many times, right? When we're talking about, you know, submitting publications, doing all these different things, like an inherent part of this job is that you just sort of reject it all the time. It's a bit like Tinder really, isn't it? Yeah, unless you're really popular on Tinder, you know, who knows, right? Yeah, let's, let's, but, not, but yeah, let's not delve into that. Let's not that, dive into it. No, I no. think um, that, was, that was our cue. Uh, that was our that cue. Was cue. Let's, let's, um, keep it, let's keep it, yeah, just nice and positive in the sense of we are here for sure. So if, if you guys struggle at any point, if anyone sort of works within academia and would be interested, we'll be more than happy to chat with you. For sure. Totally. All right. Shall we close off? Yeah. All right. So this was Bestek, the public procurement podcast. This was Bestek, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestekpodcast.com.